You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Brad Feld, who is co-founder of the Foundry Group, also co-founder back in the day of Mobius VC, a couple companies, and also Techstars, the famous accelerator, and also the author of a bunch of books, including this one, Venture Deals, which is kind of a a how-to guide for lawyers and entrepreneurs, putting together term sheets and so forth. It's actually a textbook that I use in my VC class. He also wrote a couple books on startup communities. One's called Startup Communities. The more recent one is called The Startup Community Way, which actually it's really more of a, it's kind of all about complex adaptive systems, which I found very interesting. And then the most recent book is called The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche, which this book, it says at the very beginning of this book that it's supposed to be read slowly and it's supposed to be read kind of piecemeal, pick it up and read it, put it down kind of, you know, like Nietzsche himself, but I didn't have a lot of time. So I kind of just speed read it, <laughs> which goes contrary to the spirit of the book, but hopefully we'll, we'll be able to talk about all of this stuff. I think it works any way you want to do it. So welcome, Brad. Appreciate you joining me. Thanks for having me. So maybe we'll start off with this book, The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche. You know, this, this podcast is, is called Unsiloed because it's really all about interdisciplinary thinking. And, and I originally thought that I would get you to talk about kind of interface of, of law and, and business. Cause you're, you know, you're not a lawyer, but you're an MIT guy who writes for, which, uh, you know, if you read this, you'd never know you're not a lawyer, but it turns out that we're actually going way more interdisciplinary than I thought, because we're going to talk about philosophy. And I was wondering what on earth drove you to write a book, which is effectively an, an interpretation of various quotes by Nietzsche. A couple of things. One of the things I've been doing in my writing been writing books since 2010 about entrepreneurship. And, you know, I've been writing a daily blog, almost daily blog, since about 2000, sometime in 2004. One of the things that I've been doing with my writing and my reading, I'm a huge, voracious reader, trying to drift away from the tactics of entrepreneurship and start to spend more time sort of a layer back about the philosophy of entrepreneurship or sort of the texture of entrepreneurship. And I touched on it a little bit with a book I wrote with my wife, Amy Batchelor, called Startup Life, I think around 2013 or 14. Startup Community Way, the book that I wrote with Ian Hathaway that you mentioned, had a fair amount of it. The complex adaptive system theory created a more conceptual view of startup communities than, you know, this is what a startup community is, here are the things you need to do, da 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 There's so much of that in the world. I was trying to start to think about it more conceptually. That was piece one. Second, I was incredibly inspired by what Ryan Holiday has done with stoicism Mm -hmm. and entrepreneurship. I'm an enormous fan of Ryan's. I think he's an outstanding writer. We're not super close friends, but we're friendly. Email back and forth. We've been together once or twice in person, but just deep, deep, deep love of his work. You know, it's not just like, and here's stoicism and here's how you apply stoicism. It's sort of weaving the fabric of all the different things into one's life and how to think about it. And in his case, Stoicism has been really adopted and used by a lot of entrepreneurs, but it's not just aimed at entrepreneurs, aimed more broadly. So that was kind of second. Third inspiration was my co-author, Dave Jilk. And Dave and I have been best friends since college. I met him on my very first day of college. 
He was a senior. I was a freshman. We ended up living together in the fraternity that I joined. He was had been there, obviously, for a couple of years. We started a company together. Actually, the very first company I started, we started together. It failed. But then we started another company together a couple of years later that ended up being a successful company. That while it was my third startup, I often refer to it as my first company. And 38 years later, we're still extremely close friends. And we've done a number of projects together and companies and different things. But he semi-retired a number of years ago. And today he spends his time. He has a couple of companies that he spends part-time on that he owns parts of. He writes academic papers and does research on AI, but he does it himself. He doesn't do it with an academic institution or sort of with a, a formal framework. He writes poetry, which if you time traveled back to when he was in his 20s and said, hey, you know, when you're in your late 50s and early 60s, you could be writing poetry. He'd be like, get the fuck out of here. No way. And among other things, he also hikes he lives in Colorado with me, loves to hike in the summertime, spends a lot of time, says like, you know, life does not get in the way of him going for a long hike. But he spent a lot of time in the last decade reading philosophy. And we were together on a long weekend with our wives. And really, that entails a lot of reading. Like, I'll, I'll lay around on the couch and read, and he'll read, and our wives will read, and we'll just sort of hang out. And he was reading a, a book on Nietzsche, and he just tossed a quote out to me and said, does this sound like entrepreneurship? And he, he says his sort of response to me when he tells the story now is he says, I sort of didn't even stop reading. I like listened and said, mm-hmm, and then kept reading. Like it was that mm-hmm. level of uh, reaction. But it really sort of triggered this idea of there's so much depth in Nietzsche. And when you start to unwind pieces of it and think about them in whatever the context is, an awful lot of the things, the quotes stimulate thinking about different aspects of entrepreneurship. And that was really what captured both of us. It's not that you say, okay, well, Nietzsche's philosophy applies to entrepreneurship and therefore you should do these things. That's not it at all. It's almost the inverse of it. It's here's a very provocative quote of his. Mm -hmm. Think about it, ponder it, play around with it, apply it to your own experience. And there were so many of those that resonated against the backdrop of all the different things that happened in entrepreneurship. I'd say the last motivator for it was, you know, I shared it with some friends who had read, either read a lot of philosophy or had studied philosophy at college or viewed themselves as sort of intellectuals around the construct. And one of them was Reid Hoffman, a longtime friend. And I just mentioned to Reid that I was starting to work on a book about Nietzsche and entrepreneurship, and he had an effusive positive reaction to it. He'd read a lot of Nietzsche, and you know his response was, yes, absolutely, that makes sense. And he ended up writing the foreword to the book, and he did just really an awesome job with the foreword, because some of it's actually written sort of in the style that Nietzsche would write, which was in the, it's all translated from German now, but sort of late 1800s type of writing. So those were those were the things. And I give the detail versus just sort of a, a two-liner because it wasn't a specific goal. It was sort of a confluence of things around, I'm in my mid-50s, I turned 55 in December, like spending so much time as a founder, as an entrepreneur, as an angel investor, as a venture investor, having been involved in many successful companies, but also many companies that failed, having lots of joyful experiences in life, but also having lots of real stresses and challenges. And just trying to think about sort of the path of an entrepreneur that encompasses all these things, but to start to give people a way to sort of stretch it out in in a different kind of way than maybe they've been thinking about it up to this point. Now, you, you quote Nietzsche, you know, one of his 
statements was that the worst readers are, are like plundering soldiers, you know, where they just kind of come in and take what they want and destroy the rest. Would Nietzsche say that about you? I mean, he had a vision of, of what constituted sort of the heroic individual. And I don't think he would think about kind of business people as being in that category. You know, he had a very dim view of business. He would think about poets and artists, philosophers. Do you think that entrepreneurs are really the folks that are kind of inhabiting that role for us in today's world? I mean, as creative individuals, because I think, you know, the cynical view is, oh, come on, right? Somebody's creating a, an app which entertains people or something which automates some routine office work, you know, some enterprise software application. Like, come on, how can that be compared to the great philosophers or great, great artists? I think it's a really interesting line of inquiry. I was going to say powerful, but it's a fascinating place to go. I think that there are a number of quotes that are repeated by entrepreneurs about entrepreneurship and that were attributed to people that do entrepreneurship a massive disservice. I think the two of them that stick with me the most, one of them is this whole, whatever the, the way you articulate the cliche of what I'm working on, I want to change the world. Right? The whole notion that your motivation is I want to change the world is a real disservice in my mind to the intellectual process of entrepreneurship. If it is a thing that motivates somebody, that's totally fine. I'm not being critical of it. But the idea of I'm doing this thing and my goal is to change the world, it's it's sort of aligned with or a cousin to the Steve Jobs attributed quote of, you know, I want to put a dent in the universe. I think that that is today in 2021, one of the challenges about the way people think about entrepreneurship. And I don't embrace that kind of thinking. There are plenty of ways, by the way, through entrepreneurship where you can change the world. There are plenty of ways through entrepreneurship where you create a dent in the universe. But the whole notion that that is the goal and that is what your motive force in terms of what you're doing as an entrepreneur, it doesn't have any depth to it. The other challenge for that is, you know, in 2021, we've once again made entrepreneurs or we, the collective, we have made entrepreneurs the heroic figures. And the ultra wealthy are often entrepreneurs, not always, but the ones that we sort of point at and say, wow, look at that amazing person who created this enormous amount of wealth. Some of the transformative products that we use, we kind of associate them with an entrepreneur and say, wow, that's such an incredible product because of that entrepreneur, which is a very different phenomenon from what entrepreneurship actually does in terms of how it impacts a society and how it impacts economies, not just globally, but locally in cities, how it helps individual people whether they are the ones creating the company or they are working for these new companies, generate economic independence, create new products that are ones that they care about, engage in industries that are ones that they want to spend their time and work on. So there's so many other dimensions versus just, I want to change the universe. I gave a talk, Techstars does a program with the Nature Conservancy. My wife, Amy Bachelor, is on the board for the Global Board. And Nature Conservancy is a huge organization now, I don't know, a thousand people. And it's actually maybe 5,000 people, so it's thousands of people. And it has very significant research-based focus on all aspects of our planet. I think the number, right number is 5,000 people because they've got 500 research scientists in the organization. And when people talk about climate, 
And whatever label you want to put on it, whether it's climate change or clean energy or innovation around energy or what we're trying to do. And you have at one end of the spectrum, the existential crisis associated with, you know, our planet is going to be destroyed. At the other end of the spectrum, you have people saying, well, I made my money this way and I'm going to keep making my money this way. Like you've got a whole spectrum. There is no question that people that are doing things around as entrepreneurs around climate today have the potential to actually manifest that statement. You could imagine that there are companies that are actually going to have an impact and change the world in a meaningful way. When somebody shows up with a social media app and says, I'm going to change the world, it's easy to say, you're kidding me, like another social media app. Except for if we look at, for example, Facebook, it'd be hard to deny that Facebook has changed the world. Not just in terms of Facebook, the product, but the political rise of nationalism, I would suggest is directly linked in many ways to Facebook as an amplifier of certain things. Somebody could argue with me and say, oh, you don't like Facebook. It was Twitter that did that. doesn't matter, right? The point is that there are these things. We just don't really know how they're going to impact what happens because all that stuff changes over time. Personally, I think that the entrepreneur is a powerful participant in that activity But from the bottom up, not the top down, from the focus of the thing they're doing rather than trying to control and influence broad swaths from the top down, it's the essence, and you you called out complex adaptive systems, it's the essence of the startup community way. And this idea that change happens from the bottom up in the context of a complex system rather than being defined from the top down. The reason I just went on this long rant, it cycles all the way back to your question about, basically, it was a veiled version of would Nietzsche respect me or would he think I was just some jerk trying to make money that didn't merit his respect? I don't know. But I think that today's entrepreneur, I think Nietzsche and his philosophical characteristics would put today's entrepreneur in the same category of positive that he puts an artist, that he puts a creator Not that entrepreneur who is simply focused on extracting dollars out of doing something and is sort of living the cliche of what it is, but is obsessed about the product that she is trying to create, the community she's trying to build around it, the way she's trying to influence people using a certain thing. I I think Nietzsche would have a huge amount of respect for that person. And that person would be characterized in the context of that positive character. Do you think over the course of your career, you've kind of changed your emphasis from thinking about strategies and ideas and more about character and people? As someone who's evaluating entrepreneurs and startups as entities that you're going to fund or support, they always say that you bet on the rider and not, not on the horse. Have you found yourself more and more focused on the quality of character? of founders and and less on sort of the plan or or the idea or the the dream that they have. It seems like this book started, I thought it was going to be all about complex adaptive systems, but baked in there is this notion that it's about the people and it's about the entrepreneurs themselves and they're the ones that really make it work. Yeah, when I when I started investing, which was 1994, I made 40 angel investments with my own money, money that I'd made from selling my first company between 1994 and 1996. So I did about an investment a month. I knew nothing about investments. I'd never made an investment before. The first one, the very first one was in a company called NetGenesis. 
And so I learned along the way very quickly how to, how to be an angel investor and how to make equity investments. I only had two evaluative criteria. That's it. I only focused on two things. Number one was, did I want to be partners with the people? Because I viewed myself, even if I only owned a percent of the company, I viewed myself as investing in the company and being a part owner in the company. And it wasn't the people. It was, do I want to be partners with them? I wasn't trying to rate them based on where did they go to school? What's their background? How much did they know? What was their personality? Like, it was a more abstract thing that came from the direct interaction with them. Then the second was, did I have an affinity for the product? And I didn't use those words back then. I didn't, I, I couldn't have said it that way. But when I look at it, that's basically what it was. And affinity didn't mean I was a daily user of the product because I invested in many companies where I was not going to be a user of the product. But I had to care. I had to think that the product had some merit from my frame of reference. I didn't know why, by the way, that that was the characteristic. This is benefit of hindsight. I then went through, as I became a venture capital investor and, and spent time with SoftBank, and then the firm that we spun out of SoftBank became called Mobius. We created in the internet bubble a very complex evaluative system. And we got big amount of dollars, lots of people having to figure out, like, how can you make decisions efficiently? I remember going through all that. And I remember always being of two minds of it. Of one mind, I was fascinated with us trying to figure out how to scale an investing thing that I was part of. And there was something intellectually fascinating about it. The other part of my brain thought it was all total bullshit. Like, if somebody wanted to get a deal done, you knew how to manipulate the system to get a deal done. If somebody had enough power in the partnership, they'd get a deal done, no matter what the rankings and process was. When we started Foundry Group in 2007, my partners and I talked very specifically about a set of themes and defined a set of themes that we had well before the phrase theme was used in venture capital. So today, the word theme doesn't mean anything anymore because everybody talks about being a thesis-driven or thematic-driven investor. But in 2007, there was one firm that talked about being thesis-driven, and that was USV, Union Square Ventures, who started in 2004. And very different than we then defined ourselves as being theme-driven. We had half a dozen themes. They were very abstract. They were themes like protocol, which were companies built around technology protocols like SMTP, or glue, which was software that glued machines to machines. So sort of that glue layer of software that connected machines together. In the 1980s, we would have called it middleware. And we had a couple of other themes. And... Even RLPs at the time sort of looked at it and said, that's interesting, that's different. People were still very sector-focused. You know, I invest in communication software, or I invest in business applications, or I invest in, you know, it became I invest in mobile. Our themes were horizontal. And we kept it, our evaluation process very simple. And the process became, and it'll sound familiar, over time, the way I would describe it looking backwards was, number one, are the founders obsessed about what they're doing. And we use the word obsessed instead of the word passionate because it's super easy to fake passion. It's very hard to fake obsession. You know, Greg, were you put on planet Earth to do this thing? And if not, probably not for us. Second was, did we have an affinity for the product? Again, that's that's where I get the word affinity from. I, ha I didn't have it in 1994, but it was the same feeling. Like, do we care? And part of that was a result of having done many, many investments at Mobius and seen many investments and things I didn't care about. And when everything's going great, awesome. But when it, the shit hits the fan, which it always does in every business, if you don't care about it, like it's so hard when you have other things to do to be motivated to put the energy into it that you need to, to try to help the thing become successful. And then the third was, do the founders want to be partners with us as much as we want to be partners with them? Mm -hmm. 
So if you look at that, kind of my answer is people and product. And the people is a bi-directional people. And it's not a rank. It's not a set of qualifications. It's, do you want to be partners? Do you want to work on a thing for a decade together? And the product is not, you know, is the total available market big enough? And is the innovation defensible? I mean, all of those things are sort of embedded within the conversation. But at the early stages, most of the time, the answer is the total available market's either zero or infinity. Like, who knows? Mm -hmm. And the more somebody sort of quantifies it, the more wrong they are. Later stage, you can start to use those kinds of metrics. And so at this stage, sort of late in my investing career, I would say I came back to where I started, which is people and product. And if you look at our firm today, Foundry Group, it's a completely network-driven investment strategy. We have 40 investments in other VC firms. 25% of our capital is invested in seed and pre-seed VC firms, typically sub $100 million funds, but a few that are larger that are, are longtime friends and peers of ours, like True Ventures and USV and IA Ventures. And then we're co-founders at Techstars, which makes about 500 investments a year at the pre-seed, pre-accelerator stage. And we're really very focused on helping our network and the network that we've helped fund and helped create fund companies. And we use it then as a filter, not a funnel for our own investing. A funnel would be, wow, look at all this deal flow. Let's go figure out what we want to do. The filter approach is we really believe in the people we've invested in on the fund side, and we really believe in the leadership at Techstars. So we really trust their judgment at the very early stages. And when they have a company in their portfolio that is starting to work and they're willing to put additional capital behind it and are looking for a partner to put more capital behind it, still at the relatively early stages, that's the moment that we engage and we focus on those things. You know, are these people that want us as partners as much as we want to be partners with them? Do we care about the product that they're building? And are the entrepreneurs truly obsessed about what they're trying to create? Well, a lot of this book is about how you could think of it as a, as a personal development book because it offers up insights into how to become a particular type of person who is more likely to be a successful entrepreneur. But when you're screening for entrepreneurs to fund, you're looking for certain characteristics. Do you think these characteristics can, in fact, be developed over time? And if so, do you play some role as investor in not only the shaping of the, the business, but also the shaping of the, the character of the founder? Is that part of what you do and through the acceleration process is like, you know, help build them as people that make them more successful? Absolutely. And there's a couple of different ways to talk about it. One is a notion and a concept that's deeply embedded within the values and approach of Techstars, which is mentorship. And sort of the idea of how mentorship works. Mentorship is not saying, hi, Greg, I know how to do this. You should do it this way. If you do A, B, and C, you'll be successful. That's not mentorship. Mentorship is something that's much more complex and much more subtle, but has a lot of impact on the other person's way of thinking. Not just their values, but the way they actually solve problems and approach problems. And it's through the interaction and by the way, the best mentors are ones that become peer mentorship relationships with the mentor and the mentee. So both parties are learning from each other. So that would be a piece of answering your question is like this idea of mentorship, by the way, not just from us, but from everybody else in the network that's been created. So there's an awful lot of CEO to CEO learning that happens. And it's not just, hi, I'm a first-time CEO. You've done three companies. What can I learn from you? Because that first-time CEO has fresh ways of looking at something that you, the third-time CEO, might not be thinking about. Or that CEO who happens to be a 32-year-old woman who's 
single mother that's also running your company may have a totally different frame of reference than the 47-year-old white male who's done two companies. But there's something really powerful in what she's doing that that 47-year-old white male can learn from. So these dynamics are ones that sort of the, the different lived experiences that each entrepreneur has are not static. They evolve and change over time. And I believe they can continue to change even as you become older and sort of more like, I know the answer. Well, if you know the answer, then you're probably not interesting to talk to. If you're you're searching for something new and you're constantly exploring and you're always open to the idea that you don't know everything, then you're going to be super interesting. And so I think the, the investors that show up that way are the best investors. And frankly, the entrepreneurs who show up that way too are the best entrepreneurs. The person who shows up and says, I know all the answers. Here's what you do. It's like, okay, good. You don't need me. Another dynamic I think that's really powerful is on dimensions that are, in this case, I'm going to say need, dimensions that need to change. And that's from my frame of reference. So you could disagree with me that this a particular one of these dimensions need to change. It's my view. My view is that there's massive structural inequities in tech. There have been longstanding gender inequities and longstanding racial inequities in tech. And there's other inequities as well on different dimensions, including enormous amount of ageism that continues to exist in tech in different ways. You mentioned you had a mentor who was quite a bit older than you in early stage of your career. Yeah, it was extraordinary. He And he passed away in January. His name was Len Fassler. And I would say this is a powerful thing to point to, right? Like, so Len is 34 years older than me or 35 years older than me. He bought my first company with another guy. He, he was co-chairman of a company that bought my first company with another guy named Jerry Pock, who's also been an extraordinary mentor. Len and I had early a paternalistic relationship that very quickly became a peer relationship because he allowed it to be. I learned an enormous amount from him. He learned an enormous amount from me. But my value system, even as somebody, I sold my company when I was first company when I was 27, my value system at 27 rapidly evolved over the next decade because of my interaction, not just with Len, but with others, but especially because of many of the experiences that we had together. So this would be an instantiation of this point, right? Is that I'm a successful entrepreneur. I'm 28 years old. I've just sold my company. I've made life-changing money. I could easily be the person that says, okay, I know exactly what to do. And now here's this older person that just bought my first company that's, you know, maybe this is his last company, maybe not, but he's sort of at that stage where it could be his last company. He and I went on and did a couple more companies together. And that sort of experience continues without this view that you're sort of locked in place. An interesting other piece of it, which I think is really important, is I'll come back to these things that should change. I'll use mental health as an example. There's a long-standing view or bias that as a leader, you should show no weakness. You can't show any fear. You have to lead from the front. You're the powerful alpha person in the room. Now, there are some very successful leaders who do not show up that way. And the language of authenticity and vulnerability, two words that I think are very overused in entrepreneurship today, that language started to emerge kind of in the 2010, 11, 12 timeframe coming out of the global financial crisis. And it emerged around a different type of leadership. And then there was a moment in time in about, I think 2013 or 14 was when this happened, where several entrepreneurs committed suicide within a 12-month period, high profile. 
a number of other leaders in the entrepreneurial ecosystem, including me, Jerry Colonna, who now runs a coaching firm called Reboot, Paul English, who was the co-founder of Kayak, very successful entrepreneur in Boston, Tracy Kidder, an amazing author. If people are readers here and you, you read a lot, you've probably read something by Tracy Kidder, The Soul of a New Machine, was a book I read in either late in high school or early in college. And it really completely captured me about computing. It's a story of the creation of the Data General Nova computer, which was their first mini computer, and or 32-bit mini computer, I think. Amazing writer. He wrote this book about Paul English and Paul's story and Paul's experience as an entrepreneur with bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. An incredibly brave thing of Paul to do to allow a book to be written about him with that much intimacy around mental health. But I use this example because coming out of this time period, again, where I was very open about my own struggles with, with depression and anxiety over the course of, of my adult life, I recognized that there was this enormous stigma around mental health in entrepreneurship. And I decided that one of the things that I would spend the rest of my life or career, whatever language you want to put on it, working on was eliminating the stigma associated with mental health. It was not the sole thing I did. It was not be the only thing I did, but it would be part of what I was doing in the context of my work. Because I think the stigma associated with mental health is incredibly toxic. It is a huge burden on many leaders and significantly inhibits many people's ability to accomplish things and have really successful lives. It's not the mental health challenge, it's the stigma associated with it because the mental health challenge is a challenge. Diabetes is a health challenge. You break your arm, you break your arm. If you have bipolar disorder or you have borderline personality disorder or you have obsessive compulsive disorder or you have chronic anxiety, these are things that you can work on. But if you're in a place where you're afraid to even acknowledge it, because leaders don't acknowledge those things. Leaders don't do that kind of work. It's not my problem, it's your problem. I think most people that think about it for more than a a couple of minutes know many very powerful people that have extraordinary mental health issues. And because they've never spent any time addressing those issues in the course of their life, at the peak of their power, they can do some extraordinary damage to lots of people around them because they haven't dealt with their own stuff. I feel like in the book, you're talking a lot about trade-offs. You emphasize that there are a lot of what might look like contradictions in the advice, right? So for instance, you you highlight the importance of having a, a martial soul, right? On the other hand, you also talk about the importance of, of vulnerability, right? You talk about the importance of listening, but then you also talk about how you can be subject to mentor whiplash, right? If you spend too much time listening. And then you also talk about how it's important to be a thinker, but then you also have this idea that, you know, you need a will to stupidity, right? And you reference how anecdote is sort of a, you know, shorthand for for life. So too aphorism is, is a shorthand for thought. And any of these simplistic views of what it means to be a leader, any of these simplistic views of what it means to be an entrepreneur are ultimately going to be inadequate to help provide you with the guidance that you need. Greg, you, I mean, in the last 60 seconds, you captured the essence of our goal with this book, right? The essence of the goal is to encourage you to think and to give you some raw material, give the reader, the reader, the entrepreneur, some raw material to think 
to challenge some of the things that maybe have been either sort of settled in as truths or asserted and just accepted or routinized because of one's continuous behavior. If you go back to when one is in school, and I don't really care whether it's elementary school or college, I don't care whether it's public school or private school, I don't care whether it's an elite school or a state school, it doesn't matter. If you're in a school environment, much of the value of that environment, when you step back from it and reflect on it, is that it gave you a place to think and explore ideas. Even a school that is doesn't have much resources, if the teachers, I mean, the teachers work hard, but they're not super deep beyond whatever their capabilities are, there's not a research agenda, whatever. Even in those environments, a student, if they click with this idea that they're in this context where they're allowed to think and explore, and when they think and explore, they start to learn how to use that muscle for themselves, they're going to come up with some ideas that are wrong. They're going to come up with hypotheses that don't play out. They're going to come up with things they try that they decide are not good ones. They're going to say stupid things, whatever. That's no different than any other scientific process, right? I mean, if you're at the mm -hmm. absolute elite of physics research and on the cutting edge of quantum physics and you're a professor at Princeton or at MIT, you're going to make a bunch of stupid hypotheses. You're going to make a bunch of mistakes that are not right. Like you try things, you play them out, you realize they're not right, you iterate, you learn from them, and then you build on that. That same approach is so critical to one's own development as an entrepreneur. And yet so much of the material that exists in the world for entrepreneurs is of the kind of do this, do that. If you want to be successful, then you should. Here's how you should do blah, blah, blah. And there's just not that much that causes one as an entrepreneur to sit and say, huh, how does this apply? And am I using it in a way that's really in sync with my own values and sync with the cultural norms of the companies I'm trying to create? Is this really helping me or is it hurting me? Did I just accept this as a truth because somebody powerful and successful told me it was a truth? Or did I decide that it was how I want to play it out. And we we just have tried to create something, again, not that you have to go from page one to the end in a couple of days. You, you can, but something that you can also sort of pick up and dip in and dip around. And in some cases, right, we've broken up into a number of sections, you might find something that specifically you're struggling with an issue and you look at the table of contents, you're like, wow, that's an interesting chapter, I wonder. And then you read it. It's not going to tell you the answer to anything, right? but it's going to give you something to play with and think about as you're trying to deal with how you work through this problem. I mean, you studiously avoided offering a shorthand list of how-tos in, in that book. And also, I think in, in the startup community way, you also avoided offering people uh, kind of a, a shorthand instruction manual to setting up an entrepreneurial ecosystem. You know, you really force people to think a little bit more deeply about the complicated relationships. Personally, and as a reader, it's what I look for. I think it's what makes a good book. I mean, there are tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of business books that say, here's the framework, look at this pretty picture, do the following things. And then you've still got 180 pages left to read of the book, right? The book was done after 20 pages. Like you could just give me a magazine article with those things and I'd be done. And, you know, like 
shouldn't say that. I mean, there are many very good business books that have a framework and then build on a framework. And there are some that are transformative that are still used today. Jim Collins comes to mind immediately as a thinker that the flywheel concept is such a powerful one that's used in tech so effectively when people really understand it. And it's interesting because Jim's book, Good to Great, has embedded within it the flywheel as one of its core concepts. And then a number of years ago, I don't remember how long ago, he came out with a 40-page monograph called The Flywheel. And it just was literally a monograph, 40 pages, on just the flywheel. And it's unbelievably spectacular. If you just read that little thing as an entrepreneur, it will give you a tool for almost any business. One of the conundrums of my own existence is I am regularly asked by people, just tell me the answer. Whether it's startup communities, whether it's in the context of a company, I'm at a board meeting and I'm telling a story. There's a, a fun one that always sticks with me. It's an entrepreneur I'm very close friend with and I'm telling a story to try to make a point about something. And he, he stopped, he cut me off. He said, Brad, just tell me the fucking answer this time. <laughs> he was so frustrated with his own inability to get to the answer. He just wanted the answer. I believe deeply that one of the powerful ways to be effective is to figure out the answer. It's not that you have to figure out the answer from scratch, but if somebody just says, oh, the answer is do this, you're not committed to it. Well, it would certainly make university a shorter experience if they just handed you the, the takeaways at the beginning and then you could save yourself four years. You can get a good grade on the test maybe, but you don't know anything. And oh, by the way, when the problem comes at you, it's not going to be exactly the same problem that just do this is going to solve. And so just do this might get you part of the way, but if you haven't actually thought about it at all, you're not going to get to a good final answer. And again, if you look at the best entrepreneurs, they do spend a lot of time reflecting and thinking and trying different things and talking to others and learning and exploring sort of in that idea space. And I know a lot of entrepreneurs who say, yeah, 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 when I'm done with a successful company, I'll have time for that, <laughs> which kind of just misses the whole point is that that's part of the experience of creating the successful company. And it's part of the power of being an entrepreneur right? You get to figure out with your co-founders, with your team, with your investors, with your company, with your constituents, the path you're going to go down. And when that path is wrong, if you have the muscle to explore, you will explore quickly and effectively and course correct. If you don't have the muscle to explore, you're just going to try to bash your way down that path and you'll likely fail. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of parallels between what entrepreneurs do and what explorers, adventurers, scientists do, right? It's a process of, of discovery. It's an adventure. But I wanted, even though you said you're not going to give me any quick uh, answers, I do have some questions. And one is, how do you balance kind of thinking and acting, right? I mean, you talk about how important it is to be a thinker and a reader, and obviously you're, you do quite a bit of both. But you also highlight the danger of kind of spending too much time thinking, too much time kind of dreaming, too much time drawing up hypotheticals and, and fantasies. And at some point you have to kind of get your hands dirty. How do you balance those things? Yeah. For me, it's been an evolutionary experience. I would say I have always been a naturally hard worker. Amy, my wife, jokes that ever since we met in college, ever since she knew me, like I was always one of the people that worked 
more hours and sort of endlessly. I didn't measure it. I was not a measurer. It was just sort of the essence of, I like to do it. I like to work hard. I like to spend a lot of time on things. It's also a cultural norm. I went to MIT. It's a deep cultural norm of MIT. I think about different places that are universities that are peers to MIT. And one of the characteristics that you really get at MIT, you get the shit beat out of you in a way that you don't at other schools, Harvard, Stanford, et cetera. And it's just part of the cultural norms to sort of intellectually really, really difficult. And even the most capable and smartest kids struggle through different elements of the educational experience. And what you learn is you learn how to get it done. You just learn how to keep working at it till you figure it out and get it done. So that was sort of an embedded characteristic of mine. And I think a lot of it, again, came from I liked it. So if I didn't like it, it's very hard to like continue to put that kind of energy into it. And along the way, I say it was evolutionary. Along the way, I have always been a very deep doer in one category, but a pretty shallow thinker in many categories. So I like to read lots of different stuff. I don't necessarily spend lots, when I say shallow, that's a deliberate word. I don't spend lots and lots and lots of time on lots and lots of different things. I spend lots of time in one deep vein, but I allow myself to drift horizontally across lots of different things. And I'm a good synthesizer. It's one of my skills is to take lots of different things and sort of put the puzzle pieces together in a way that is understandable. To sit and listen, I realize I'm spending most of my time here talking. I've worked to become a, a pretty good listener and I can listen. And then when I hear a bunch of different things, knit them together in a way that makes it a lot simpler for everybody to relate to. And what I've had to do in this evolution is I've had to try approaches, some that worked and some that failed. So an example of one that works really well is once a quarter, Amy and I go on vacation. We take a week off the grid. I'm fortunate that I can do it once a quarter. So every 12 weeks, I just, no email, no phone, no nothing on my calendar. I just take a week off. And I read, during that week, I read roughly a book a day. I probably read between seven and 10 books over the course of a week. And it's not that I made a stack of them and said, these are the books I'm going to read in advance. I allow myself to kind of go wherever I want when I get to that week. Same thing with the sort of exploration of thought. It's not very structured. I'm not spending a lot of time taking online classes. I'm not spending a lot of time saying, okay, this month or this quarter, I'm going to learn about this. It's much more of staying in my that deep place that I'm playing and then just grazing where I'm interested, wherever it takes me. That's how it's worked for me. I don't know whether that'll work for other people. But if I went back to my 25-year-old self and said, here's how you're going to do it, that 25-year-old self wouldn't have understood what I was saying. That 25-year-old self would have said, you know, I don't get what you're saying. Like, I've got this company. I'm spending 100 hours a week working on this company. I'm super deep in these areas. Yeah, I read lots of books, but like, I don't know what you're talking about. Go away. So again, it's an evolution over time versus an absolute, okay, I figured out the way I'm going to do it. Now I'm going to do it this way. One last comment on this. I am not a note taker. I used to take notes. And what I found was I'm a, not an auditory learner. I'm a visual learner. I learn by reading versus by listening. But what I learned was that I can't do them both at the same time very well. Right. So if I'm in a class or I'm hearing a lecture or I'm listening to somebody else or I'm watching a video and I'm trying to take notes, I'm actually not getting the information in. Mm -hmm. 
Now you could say, well, you take the notes and just read the notes. And the answer is, yeah. And I can do that much faster by just reading the transcript Mm -hmm. of the video. And because of technology today, like I don't have to watch a video on YouTube anymore. I can just, either there's already a transcript of it or there's lots of software that I can point the URL at that will give me a transcript if I want to read the transcript. Most of my classes, my PowerPoints are just pictures. There's no words because I think if you're trying to read and and listen at the same time, it's not going to work. Well, there are some people who can, and there are lots of people who are note takers. Like what I've kind of come to is people learn in different ways, which is, again, totally fine. I've discovered that I learn by reading, not by listening. And that if I'm in a context where I have to listen, I have to listen. I have to use 100% of my energy to listen. So I will. That has one last thing that, that plays out in this. You say, well, okay, Brad, you're on plenty of podcasts. Why do you do those? I typically do them around a new idea. I did, I don't know, a hundred something. When I came out with, it was pre-podcast, so a lot of it was either in person or video things. When I came out with startup communities, I probably did a hundred, 150 talks. A hundred percent of them are impromptu. In the same way you use pictures, I never use slides. I never prepare. I don't talk about something I don't feel that I've prepared for. Part of doing this is thinking through out loud the conceptual stuff that I'm working on. I've just come out with a new book on entrepreneurship and Nietzsche. I'm going to do a bunch of talking out loud about it, which is useful, hopefully, to your listeners because hopefully they'll get something out of it. What would be interesting is if if you had a bunch of different interviews and they asked you the same question and you could compare your answer each time, right? You know, and each answer would be a different perspective on the question. I think it's actually a pretty good research study for somebody to do on that vector because, for example, when startup commu- the Startup Community Way came out, there's probably 40 or 50 podcasts. And in those podcasts, each podcast probably has five to 15 questions. Most of those questions probably compress into, it's not additive, there's not 200 questions. People have asked me about the Startup Community Way. There's probably 50 different questions or 30 different questions that I've answered 25 different ways each question. If you did it from beginning to end, at the beginning, my answers were probably pretty fuzzy, pretty murky. You listen to it be like, I'm not totally sure what that guy's saying. That was your MVP podcast. You got it. And by the end of it, it wasn't that the talk track was nailed and I was giving a talk track like I'd memorized a thing. The answers were always a little different, probably. The stories were always a little different, but the point came through. And it wasn't that the questions were all the same. This is the part that I think is so interesting for me, at least, about learning. It's not that they were the same questions. They were the same category of questions. And so the verbal stimuli I was getting was prompting an answer, but it wasn't, oh, that's answer number 17. Okay, here's answer number 17 for you. If we tie all that back to the Nisha book that we just wrote, again, that's the essence of it. There isn't an answer number 17. Because the situation you're in right now as an entrepreneur that you're wrestling with is slightly different than whatever, whoever wrote the narrative was or whatever I was thinking about or Dave Joke was thinking about when we wrote the book. But there's some stuff in there that I'll prompt you to think about it in a way that maybe will be transformatively helpful to you. Well, that means we're not going to be able to automate our appearances on these these shows. You know, that would save us a lot of time. So there's one progression that I thought was really powerful, which you, you borrowed from Nietzsche, which is this kind of progression from, you know, the camel to the lion to the child, right? 
And I remember when I heard this the first time and it just kind of resonated. And and I wanted to see if you could tie that with your discussions on, on stoicism, right? Because, you know, you talk about stoicism and how helpful it is sort of in the first stage. And you also talk about how disruptors are fundamentally different from from optimizers. And it seems like the philosophy of stoicism is consistent with whether you're an optimizer or a disruptor, it's going to be helpful to you in both ways. But I think the philosophy of Nietzsche, as you've articulated it, is is really much more appropriate to the disruptor than to the to the optimizer. Totally agree. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we put the subtitle, A Book for Disruptors. I also agree with a comment about stoicism. I've been saying it lately. I, I look forward to being on Ryan Holiday's podcast. We're going to do a podcast together about it. I don't know what Ryan's reaction is going to be when I say this. So I'm, I'm going to put it out there for him. This is your beta version. You can do it now and then we'll stress test it. Well, it's a line that's sort of in my head that I, I think is right from my frame of reference, but it may not be a correct statement. But I've been carrying around the idea that stoicism is to tactics as Nietzsche is to strategy. And there might be better words than tactics and strategy. Stoicism's had a big impact on my life, and I got introduced to it not for the first time through Ryan's writing, but I really immersed myself in it through Ryan's writing. And much of my own behavior prior to me reading anything by Ryan had characteristics around Stoicism. I have success, I have failure, it's what it is. As I've worked through my own struggles with anxiety, in a lot of ways, for me, the solution to my struggles with anxiety have a lot to do with much of the Stoic philosophy. Sort of not trying to solve the thing, but accept it for what it is and then figure out different approaches to how to deal with it that are effective in the context of whatever's going on and do it in a way that I have an experience on this planet that is one that I feel is satisfying and fulfilling. When you start to then travel into Nietzsche land and you think about some of his language, some which some people interpret really incorrectly. And it's one of the fascinating things to me, and I think to Dave also about Nietzsche. And in this book at the end, we have a section on Nietzsche specifically and areas where he's misunderstood. And we try to help people understand in, in a substantive way why some of these things attributed to Nietzsche are incorrect. A very, very common one is that he is somehow affiliated with the Nazis, the alt-right sort of adopted a couple of quotes of his and used them and sort of this notion that all of a sudden he's an important part of that. And we chase these down intellectually, going back into the 1800s as well as contemporary and sort of show that these are actually not correct. Well, Nietzsche also gets credit for critical theory as well on the other side of things. Oh, this is the positive, right? Critical theory. The negative is this sort of stuff. The positive is incredible. We have a chart in the book of all of the different, again, in this section of all of the different areas of thought, not just philosophy, but contemporary thought, which includes science, that Nietzsche was the bridge for. He was the bridge from classical to contemporary or pre-modern to post-modern. People say it different ways. I like classical to contemporary. But he, he was literally the bridge. So a lot of people know the God is dead quote from Nietzsche. I mean, he was the first philosopher to really set that line in between a theist-type philosophy and a non-theist type philosophy. And he did it in his very provocative way with words that were extremely powerful. But then if you keep going, like you just don't take the quote, but you keep going, he's actually doing something really significant there about talking about human beings and the species and what we are and how that actually builds. The example you gave, Camel Lion to Child, 
I think it's particularly relevant for me at this moment in my life. It was awesome, by the way, the first time I read it in that form, because it shows up in other kinds of philosophical tenets. You see it some in Buddhism, you see it in some of sort of theist writings, but the evolution of the state of your life and what you're doing at different state of your life, and this idea that one can think pretty obviously, you know, the lion is at the peak of, of your power. You go from this worker mode camel to this peak of power lion. I'm not doing whole story justice, but I'm kind of putting a very small piece on it. Peak of power. And then later in life, to be a child again, not in that you've become mm-hmm. infantilized and you can't do anything, but you have the curiosity of a child. You have the exploratory interest of a child again after having these incredible experiences through those other phases of your life. And I mentioned this earlier, I'm in my mid-50s, and at this place where one of the, the reading jags I go on regularly is books about the liminal state of midlife. I sometimes fantasize about living to be 173 years old, but that's probably unlikely. It's more likely that I'm more than halfway done in terms of time with my life. Like the chance of me living past 110 is low. Could happen. Not going to rule it out, but it's low. And so it's pretty hard for me to deny that I'm now in midlife. And both my parents are still living. And so this interesting conversation to my parents say, hey, did you ever expect you to have a 55-year-old kid? Like, how did that happen to you? Which just means they're old. And they look at each other sort of at the last stage of their life. And they both settled into a place where they're enjoying being in their late 70s and early 80s. And that's very powerful. And it's a powerful part of saying, okay, if I can be deliberate about moving into that mode of child again, what are the things I want to be spending my time on? And one of the things I think Nisha does a good job at, and you know, he had a lot of struggles in terms of his own health and died relatively young. He was sickly for a long time. He kind of had a decade, the last decade of his life was a one where he was very mentally ill and really not very competent in terms of his own thinking, whether he went crazy or something else happened. I think it was syphilis. Yeah. I mean, I put that in the category of non-deterministic, but probably plenty of characteristics that, that added up to it, including things like syphilis. In 2021, like if you're successful and healthy, you have different choices. And how do you do those choices against, if you come back to the beginning of our conversation, the cliche that I don't like, the entrepreneurial cliche of I'm going to put a dent in the universe or, you know, I'm going to change the world. Okay, really? (laughs) And for some people, that is going to be the thing. It's not for me. So it's been an interesting meta journey writing a book like this as I think about what is it as I become a child? What do I want to do? How do I want to do it? which is not a hard disconnect. I mean, the hard disconnect from things are you get fired from what you're doing and you decide you're done or you die. And I'm not on a journey of a hard disconnect. I hope I don't die. And I'm certainly in a place where there are many things I do that have a long tail to it. But I'm certainly not working the same way I worked when I was 25 years old. I don't have the same needs from an outcome perspective. And It's part of, I think, challenging others, whether they're in their 20s or they're in their 50s or in their 70s, whether they've been really successful or not, whether they're in a position where they have a lot of resources or not, but do identify as an entrepreneur, to challenge them how to think about how they want to spend their time versus having to be 
boxed into either a cliche or the way TechCrunch says that you should spend your time or the way one interprets it from reading TechCrunch or the way, and I use TechCrunch as a proxy for maybe exogenous media or how society has labeled this as success. If you want to be called successful, this is what you should do. And, you know, is that really what is the most helpful to any individual person? I don't think it is. In the book, The Startup Community Way, you, you talk about how your thought went from simple to complicated to complex. And you said that creating something like a startup community, it isn't simple, but there may be some leverage points that you can use to kind of jumpstart this. Do you think that when it comes to personal development and the construction of this this individual, that a similar sort of leverage point might be available right now that we understand that what it means to be a human is, is not simple and it's not complicated, it's complex. Is it less about doing and, and more about being? How do we jumpstart this process of becoming what I like to think of as the camel, the lion, and the child all in one? Yeah, well, the, there's thousands of years of Buddhism now to play around with that concept, sort of the next layer down. But my short answer is yes, absolutely. The development of a human over their course of their life is a complex adaptive system, period. We use that as an example in the book. Anybody who's ever had a child or raised a child or been a child, which then gets to be all of us. If on day one, you tell your child when they're 20 years old, they're going to have these kinds of friends, they're going to study this, they're going to like this kind of food, they're going to do these kinds of sports, they're going to go to this school, they're going to behave this way. Like, basically, all you're doing Mm -hmm. is setting your child up for a lot of therapy, right? It's not how it works. And any parent knows that they're influencing the child's development, but they're not controlling the child's development. And a complex adaptive system evolves. I mean, that's the language of complexity theory, right? You have inputs that generate outputs that generate new inputs, and all of that evolves, and all of those things feed off each other over the life of the organism. So as human beings, we're complex adaptive systems, period. Your question is, are there simple triggers or simple behaviors that can have meaningful or profound impact on people in the evolution of themselves as complex systems? And the answer for me is yes, from my frame of reference. I'll give a few examples. Example number one, it is now well understood scientifically that sleep has a huge impact on our development as human beings. When I was younger, that was not the case. I feel like it was pretty machoistic. I feel like it was male-centric. But when I was in college, I pulled an all-nighter every Thursday night, which is what, what I did. It was a badge of honor, and I was pretty wiped out by Friday night, and we'd have some beers or do whatever, and then I'd crash and sleep till 11 o'clock on Saturday. Even in my mid 30s, early 40s, into my late 40s, I traveled a lot. And I would travel on red eyes to save time. And I, I believed that I was sleeping on red eyes and getting good sleep. And when I got depressed when I was 47, part of my reflection on all that, I stopped waking up with an alarm clock. And I didn't wake up. I know I don't use an alarm clock anymore. But for the six months after I stopped waking up with, with an alarm clock, I slept around or more than 12 hours a night. And I shifted my day so my day didn't start till 11. And I'm a pretty early bird anyway, so I go to sleep at 9 or 10. And I would wake up at 10 in the morning, 9.30, 10, 15. I was exhausted. I mean, exhausted. And the exhaustion came from years and years and years of cumulative sleep deficit, amongst other things. But that would be an example of a very, very simple tactic. And, you know, for somebody who says, eh, I don't know what you're talking about. There's been a couple of really great books. Yeah, my colleague Matt Walker has written a very good book. The why of sleep? Yeah, why sleep? Yeah. Why sleep? Spectacular. Because it consolidates a lot of that. 
we're investors in this company, Whoop. They collect 50 to 100 times the amount of data per second that you do off of an Apple Watch or other similar products. And they have enormous algorithms for understanding recovery where sleep is one of the inputs into it. And it's just remarkable when you get enough sleep and real sleep, not just eyes closed sleep, but deep sleep, REM sleep, and not the wrong balance. Like if you're getting a lot of it, it means you don't have enough. Like your body is has some equilibrium and my body and your body are not the same, but there's well well-defined equilibrium and it changes as you get older. That would be a tactic, like just understanding that there is enormous physical, emotional, mental benefits from getting the right amount of sleep. In the same way, by the way, I think most people know this at this point, like if you eat in a healthy way, where a healthy way differs by complex system, but there's some pretty consistent things that matter across humans, although our genetics vary a lot, But if you eat in a way that is healthy for you, you will have more energy, you will think better, you will live longer, you will, you know, unless something cataclysmic happens. So there's a whole category of that. And I would put that in the same thing, not just sleep, but then extend it to take care of yourself. There's nothing wrong with working 100 hours a week. If you work many hours, whatever that many hours is, if you are not then taking care of yourself in the hours you are not working, which by the way includes sleep, but also include what you put into your body, how you spend your time with other people, how you spend your time by yourself. It's not healthily sustainable over a long period of time. By the way, you can work 40 hours a week or 30 hours a week. And in some ways, I'm going to use a word that Amy and I like to joke about, which is, does this word even really matter? You can be more productive, more effective, You can accomplish different things than somebody who works 100 hours a week. So like the measure of how much you work has nothing to do with the work that you're actually doing and how you're doing it. So the simple things is to figure out those characteristics for you. Do the work on yourself. Understand whether being with a big group of people fills up your tank or draws down your tank, depletes your tank. Whether being alone fills your tank depletes your tank. I just described the difference between an introvert and an extrovert. A lot of people have never really thought hard about it. They say, oh, I'm an introvert. Oh, I'm an extrovert. But they don't actually think about what gives them energy versus what takes energy away from them. And then they don't calibrate their time to make sure that the tank is generally full enough. And that especially in periods of time where you know you're going to be an extended time that's going to drain your tank, you're not already dealing with a tank that's almost drained. So that would be a whole category of simple. Another version of that, I'll just give one other, which I think is a simple concept, but extremely hard to do. And it's hard for me at points in time too. It's to turn down the volume on things that don't immediately impact you. It doesn't mean turn off the volume. It doesn't mean turn it to zero. You can, and there are Long periods of time where I turn the volume to zero on lots of stuff. But it's turn it down. Turn it down to one or two and turn it off for periods of time to zero. And today there's lots of, you know, here's how you should manage your phone time and take your apps off your main screen. You can do the all the Tristan Harris stuff, which is quite good if you're in a place where you're looking at your phone 300 times a day. And, you know, every time you have a spare moment, you're going onto Twitter or Facebook. Lots of tactics around that. But the simple thing is to say, you know what, I'm going to turn the volume down on the things that 
either don't impact me immediately or I can't influence. If you go back in time 300 years or 200 years, before we had the communication technology and infrastructure that we have today, people got letters from other people. And when they got the letters, they sat and they read the letter. And the time took between when the letter was sent and they got the letter could be meaningful number of days. Or months. Or months. And yet the value of that letter, when you sat down to read the letter, you didn't just skim it and then hit archive, right? You sat with that thing that was in that moment important to you. I'm not saying read your email slowly and don't hit archive, but try to shift more of your time towards things that you can be intentional with and spend real time with and turn the volume down and all that other stuff. You do not need to check Google News 17 times during the day. You do not need to if you're working on something that takes a while to do. Oh, by the way, in the time that we've been doing this, I haven't checked my email once. Oh my (laughs) God, I wonder what's in my inbox. I know what's in my inbox. What's in my inbox is probably a couple of things that I need to address, a whole bunch of things asking me for something, and then a whole bunch of random stuff that I don't really even need to look at. That's a simple thing. Like, Be intentional about how you spend that precious time that you have versus just continue to be in whatever the current state of evolution you are with regard to all that stimuli. So I think that in business schools, we, we probably could spend more time teaching people self-knowledge, more time teaching people self-management, more time teaching people right how to live or how to think about how to live. And I'm sure that in Techstars, you're also including some of this stuff in how you create entrepreneurs, successful entrepreneurs. I have a question for you. Yeah. In your classroom, do you let people have laptops open and phones open? At Berkeley, we do not. We insist that they keep them closed, although people will periodically sneak them under the desk. And certainly with the Zoom classroom, it's almost impossible to prevent people from doing it. But what's interesting is that we were unable to kind of impose this from above. It was only possible because the students themselves voted to ban electronics in the classroom. Love it. And so, you know, it's easy to enforce that norm because you can say, hey, this is a student norm. You guys voted for it. But there's definitely a little bit of resistance and and pushback. The reason I asked the question, actually, I'm fascinated by the answer because I I like the student norm. My question, by the way, is not anti-computers in classroom. If what people did on their computers when they were in the classroom was, was take notes. Yeah. A computer or tablet's incredibly helpful. But as we all know... There's too many notifications popping up and temptations are too strong. Yeah, you're taking notes and then you get a notification or you're in a stretch of the classroom where you're a little bit bored. And so you go check Facebook or check email. And back to simple, we have this mythology that we can multitask. And it's wrong. It's bullshit. It's not true. It's not that you can't switch from a task to another task, back to a task, back to another task in a way that you feel like you're multitasking. But your actual ability to process that information in a meaningful way is significantly inhibited. And I think people have learned that actually with video conferencing. Like if you're in video conferencing and you go look at something else while the video conferencing is going on and somebody asks you a question yeah. while you're off looking at your email, no matter how good you think you are at multiprocessing, you're kind of stumped. And if you happen to have a little bit of your brain catching what was being said in a way you can play it back, you might be able to, in a not embarrassing way, say, 
I wasn't paying attention because mm-hmm. you can at least say something that sort of relates to the thing in a way where somebody's like, oh, okay, and then you go to the next thing. But that's pretty useless. I had this happen yesterday. I, I was on a call going through, it's a deal we were working on and going through an issues list with a bunch of people on a call on the company side that we'd gotten back from the seller had marked up the thing. And the thing we were on, I didn't care about. And I was hungry. So I went to the kitchen, which was just far enough away from my computer where I could sort of hear what was being talked about, but I couldn't totally process it. I made myself a quick bowl of something and I came back. And as I came back, one of the people said, Brad, what do you think? And I probably could have bullshitted my way through it, but that wouldn't have been helpful or useful. And I said, tell me which thing we're on because I went to get a piece of food and I didn't hear the last couple of minutes of the conversation. And it turned out the thing they were on was not the thing they were on when I went to get the food. It was the next thing, which I did care about. And I just use that sort of as an example, like acknowledging the reality of attention, one's own attention, and then trying to do it in a way that's productive, especially in this hybrid world, which I firmly believe we're going to be in for a long time. I don't think we're in a back-to-work world. I think we're in a world where some people are going to be in offices and some people are going to be remote and some companies are going to be really comfortable with it and other companies are going to be really uncomfortable with it. Again, if you go back to simple tactics, and again, that came from that classroom setting, like understanding how to really be present around whatever it is you're doing is a powerful place to be and I think it's an even more important place to be coming out of the COVID world environment that we're in because of so many different options that people are now going to be more comfortable with than they were pre-COVID. Yeah, I agree. Okay. The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche. Check it out and hopefully it'll stimulate an interest in Nietzsche if you haven't already been reading him. You should definitely read him if you're already familiar with him. It's great to get Brad's and Dave's take on the different quotes. Also, for those of you interested in jumpstarting a startup community or an entrepreneurial ecosystem, which is slightly different, check this book out. At some point, I'd love to talk to you about the Boulder approach because you've been instrumental in helping develop an ecosystem out there. And for those of you who are thinking of being an investor or a founder, you absolutely have to check out this book, Venture Deals. It's indispensable for anybody who's thinking about signing a term sheet on either side of the arrangement. So thank you so much, Brad. Appreciate it. Greg, was a blast. Congrats on getting the podcast series rolling. Happy to, after 50 more podcasts, cycle back around and be a guest again and do some startup community waste stuff with you. Great. Talk soon. Let's do it. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.